Hey everybody. Uh, not that it's a contest, but I heard you're the fun service. So, uh, is that true? Yes. Shout out to the balcony. I see a back row of just guys. What's up, guys? How are y'all doing back there? All right, I'll be talking to you uh, in particular. <laughs> it's good to see you guys. Thanks for being here. Seriously, and thank all of you guys for being here. Uh, it's an honor to be here. Um, I told the first service, I feel a bit like a negligent uncle who like prayed for you and loved you and heard about you being born and then didn't see you until you were like 12 years old. And <laughs> like, how, look how big you are. And you're like, who are you? Uh, you know, why are you at Thanksgiving dinner? And um, it's funny, uh, I don't know who it was, but somebody came and thanked me for being Brandon's mentor. <laughs> Which I'm like, well, if mentorship is us calling each other when we planted a church at the exact same time and being like, we don't have any idea what we're doing, don't tell anybody, then I will put that on my LinkedIn profile and take uh, all the credit for it. But it's, it's an absolute honor to be here. Y'all are a beautiful people and to experience it is one of the greatest gifts. Um, yeah, I feel the exact same way. Just want to honor, especially Brandon and Emily, for just what y'all have done uh, here. I think one of the things that my wife Megan and I talk about in terms of planting a church that makes it unique, you know, we had four kids, like Brandon said, we had our four kids after planting the church. But we always, we always say, it's like we're kind of joking, but we're not really, that the first kid we had was our church. Um, because you pour so much of your heart and your energy and your emotion and your time. I mean, it is like the most costly thing you can do. Um, and so for what has been costly that I see or the people around you see, and for what is costly that only Jesus will see, we honor you. And we're thankful for you and for your family and your kids. Uh, as well, and so just see it to see the fruit of what you guys have done is is amazing. And I know many of you, you know, nobody does this in isolation, and many of you have sacrificed and participated. But you've created a really unique and beautiful uh, community. And I'm not just saying that to say something nice. So you like me on the front end of this. Um, I really, I really do mean it. Uh, one of one of the there's some hard things about speaking somewhere else that's not your church and. One of it is you get told what to talk about. You don't get to talk about what you want to talk about. You get to talk. And so, uh, so Brandon, I think it was like around Christmas or so, you sent what we were doing. I was like, series on prayer? Okay, I can do a series on prayer. And then I got the line we're doing, which I'm doing the prayer on forgiveness. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Um, <laughs> and and, and here's, here's, let, me, let me name what I feel on the front end uh, just so we can trust each other before you give me the gift of listening to me for a period of time, is it's easy for me to instinctually feel, I drove here um, because I can now drive places. In Colorado, you can't drive anywhere. You're just in the middle of nowhere. But in Nashville, you can drive all sorts of places. And I was driving here, driving up 65, and I'm just thinking to myself, God, I feel like I'm going to come and like burden a bunch of people I don't really know by telling them that they are obligated to forgive people who have really wounded them. And they're going to be like, we don't know you, and you don't know me. So who does Brandon think he is to bring this dude in here to talk about, you know, like my childhood wounds, right? And forgiving them and forgiving my dad for that thing that, that he did. I, um, the image that came to my mind is it's like for some of you, you were overwhelmed and you were burdened and you were heavy laden because of the legitimate and grievous ways you have been wronged by people you really trusted and believed in. 
And you're just, like, you're here, and you just being here is amazing. Like, it was hard for you to be here, right? Because, like, last night, you were woken up in the middle of the night by a nightmare of reenacting a situation that you experienced, and maybe there's a conversation you have to have. And so you felt, you struggled falling asleep, and you were woke up, woken up in the middle of your sleep, and you had trouble falling back to sleep, and then you woke up too early. And, you know, you probably thought to yourself, like, Maybe instead of going to the second service, I'll go to brunch. That's probably going to be a better experience for me. I'll just go to brunch. And you come here and you walk in. And then a guy you don't know is going to tell you to forgive the things that were giving you nightmares last night. And you can come in and, you know, I, I feel that some, to some degree of like, am I, am I burdening these people? Am I, am, I, am I coming alongside somebody who was barely limping in here and I took like a hundred pound medicine ball and I'm like, here, forgive them. And you're just like, Ugh. you know, just get crushed under the weight of the burden to forgive somebody who's really legitimately wronged you. That's what I feel. Now, it's not where I've ended up, right? Like, I, I don't think that's where we're headed in case you're like, whoa, this is going to be a dark one. Um, no, like, I mean, here's the great thing about Jesus is Jesus's burdens are never heavy. His yoke is easy. His burden is light, beloved. Love one's by God. He never burdens you. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And consequently, you and I, even if instinctually, initially, we might have some hesitancy to a command to forgive the people that have wronged us, what we can have is this deep sense of expectancy that he is not burdening us, but rather he is liberating us and inviting us into the life that is really life. That he is equipping us with weapons to declare war on the bitterness that enslaves us and prevents us from living any full life at all. I'll tell you what's infinitely harder than forgiving is living a life of unforgiveness. And it will burden you, and it will create bitterness and resentment within you. If I can give you an analogy, now, I'm going to tell you something. I might actually take this coat off because it's a little bit, I can't do with my arms what I want to do with my arms. But uh, this is a chore coat, but this is from J. Crew. okay? Uh, and that's a good parable of how handy I am in terms of, like, I dress like I came from the farm, but I do not live on the farm. I live on a cul-de-sac in the suburbs. Uh, what that means is I'm about to use a bit of a you know, an outdoorsman analogy, but don't get it twisted that, you know, I'm not trying to pretend that I'm something that I'm not. Now, I spent 12 years in urban Denver, uh, lived in the middle of the city and did that. Before I did that, I actually grew up in Virginia, Richmond, Virginia. And one of my fond core memories growing up is that I would go fishing with my grandfather on the James River. I didn't live too far away from the James River, and I would go down with my grandfather. And so uh, this is not a legitimate chore coat, but I am going to give you a fishing analogy if you can stick with me to that degree. When I would go uh, fishing with my grandfather, he would uh, hand me the pole, and on the pole is the line, and on the end of the line is the hook, and there's this thing at the end of the hook. Do you know what the, it's at the end of the hook? It's called a barb. That's what it's called. It's called a barb. And at the, end, the point of the barb, it's that jagged part at the end of the hook that makes it so that when a fish bites on the bait, the fish's mouth is not merely impaled, but it is kept. It is hooked, right? Like no matter how much the fish tries to swim away, it is hooked. Now, that's the image. That brutal image is what I want you to have in your mind in terms of what a life of unforgiveness does to us. Is that we have, like, here's the thing, is, is we exist in this often brutal tension that life is tragic, but God is always faithful. 
Life is tragic, but God is faithful. Life is tragic, but God is faithful. And when life is tragic, and when we are wronged, and when we are betrayed, and when the person that we thought to ourselves, oh, surely not you. Oh, not, not you would never do that to me. When we have those experiences, those personal encounters of betrayal and being wronged and being hurt, we tend to not just be merely impaled. We tend to get hooked. And we tend to get frozen where something can happen to us in childhood, something can happen to us in our 20s, something can happen to us that freezes us in time and the totality of the remainder of our life can be one of unforgiveness and our vision for life shrinks from being this kind of free, playful, God loves me, I'm his child, he's my father, he casts before me this kind of beautiful opportunity and invitation to live a good, full life to where we get frozen and life becomes completely a response to the worst thing that happened to us. That's what trauma and traumatic inducing, uh, trauma inducing experiences a lot of times does to us. In fact, even just to make this practical, here's what I see most frequently is that when we get frozen in time, we usually exist in the polarity, and we, a lot of times we bounce between this, in a place where the vision for life shrinks from fullness and obedience and enjoyment of God to a life of self preservation and vindication. Self-preservation and vindication. Now, self-preservation is a thing that's very instinctual when you've gone through something that is really hard where you instinctually say to yourself, I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but what I'm sure as heck going to do is make sure I never get close to an experience that will lead to me hurting like this ever again. I don't want to ever, ever do this again. That's actually what, like, unprocessed trauma does is pass unprocessed trauma. A lot of times it becomes the lens through which we see the present and the future, and we just see it everywhere, in colors, everything. If trauma were red, everything is red. If relationships hurt us, every relationship is dangerous. And we go to this place where we kind of make these uh, agreements in our heart of like, people hurt me, and so I'm never gonna get close to a person ever again. That's self-preservation. Now here's the really frightening thing, is let me tell you what's gonna hurt you, I'm guaranteeing you, it'll hurt you way more than being hurt in community, is a life of isolation. Isolation will kill you. But a lot of times it feels like the safest place to flee because of what we've gone through. So we self-preserve, or a lot of times what we do is we vindicate. Now, by vindication, what I mean is the rest of your life becomes a pursuit of beating that person who hurt you. And what's wild is a lot of times that person who hurt you, they're not even thinking about you anymore. They didn't even know they did to you what they did to you. Or they died, or they're living somewhere else. But it is crazy the degree to which we will live places, we will work jobs, we will take on things that will hurt our families, all in the name of accomplishing something that makes us feel like there's some sort of scoreboard that God is going to emerge out of the heavens that is like, you did it, you won, they lost, way to go, high five, we did it. And unfortunately, life doesn't work like that at all. In fact, when I was in uh, Denver, a significant portion of my ministry was just counseling people who had broken up with people. And I was counseling this young woman who had a really bad breakup. And she was, so we were in this coffee shop, and she was like, I'm not going to be able to meet next time. We were meeting like every other week four times to kind of process it. And she's like, hey, just so you know, I'm not going to be able to meet next week because I'm going down to mountain climb in South America, Patagonia, which is in Argentina. Patagonia is not just a clothing brand. It is also a mountain range as well. And, uh, and she was like, I'm going to go down to Patagonia, and I'm going to go mountain climb. Uh, why? Because the stereotypes of what Denverites are like are true in terms of, like, that's what they do to process a breakup is they go 
mountain climbing in South America. She's like, I'm just going to go down there. So, like, we miss the next session, and we get together. And, of course, you know, I'm thinking to myself, like, how did it go? Like, how did Patagonia go? Tell me all about it. She's like, it was okay. It's like, okay. You know, and, like, there's a guy with four kids who never goes on vacation. I was a little resentful of the okay, you know? Like, yeah, sorry your South American vacation was just okay. But that's not what a counselor says, right? The counselor's like, tell me more about that. And so, so I checked myself, and I said, well, why was, it, why was it just okay? It seemed like this was a dream. And she said, you know, I got a couple days into this, and I realized the only reason I'm here is because I want to have this experience that's epic that I can take two or three photos of, that I can post on my Instagram stories so I can see who viewed it, to see that my ex viewed it, and for him to see that I'm doing well without him and that I won and he lost. And she said, I realize that's a really bad reason to go mountain climbing in Argentina. That's incredible self-awareness. But how many of us in this room are living lives right now, hey, look at me, and you hate it? Like, if you're really honest, you don't like it? Like, you're working a job you don't like because you want to prove that second-grade teacher who spoke a work of condemnation over you? Like, I'll show you. You're trying to get some parent who may not even be alive anymore to give you an approval that, I mean, they can't give you. And to be honest, if they were alive, they probably still wouldn't give you because it's never good enough. But we will work jobs, and we will live in cities, we will take up hobbies, we will take on impossible tasks, we will get physically sick, we will make our loved ones who are close to us pay the cost in our pursuit of trying to win the favor that, quite honestly, we hate and who have hurt us the deepest. This is the darkness of bitterness. This is the consequence of unforgiveness. And it's why I come in here with a burden, not that I'm going to burden you, but actually invite you into what liberates you, which is Jesus' invitation to forgiveness. The really difficult invitation into forgiveness. Jesus' invitation into forgiveness, the gift of forgiveness, is a weapon that declares war on their bitterness that enslaves us in the ways we've just talked about. So what I hope you feel at the back end of this is not like, I mean, I think a lot of times in church, a guy like me doesn't know you. I don't know you. I don't know what you've been through, but I do know people enough to know you've been through some really hard things that feel almost impossible to forgive, and it can feel like what I'm telling you is you to feel like, oh, I've got to forgive. Oh, oh, okay, I guess I will. I guess since Jesus said I'll do it, which doesn't work. But instead, this sense of God loves me and he cares for me. And in the midst of life's tragedy, his faithfulness intersects with exactly what it is I need. I do not have to give. I get to give. I get to forgive. I don't have to forgive. I get to forgive. I, I am gifted this weapon of forgiveness so that my life is not enraptured in bitterness that is really no life at all. So we're going to look at this passage, but the passage is a verse, and I'm only doing half of the verse. Two points. Point one is Jesus telling you to be, ask for forgiveness, and point two is Jesus telling you to give forgiveness, okay? So you need to receive forgiveness, and you need to, you need to uh, give forgiveness. So point one. Let's talk about receiving forgiveness. Jesus says, and forgive us our sins. So what Jesus is doing here is he's telling us prior to a mandate to forgive others is a mandate to be forgiven. 
that before we're called to forgive, we're called to ask. Now the question should be, who are we asking? And we go prior in the passage. See, we're asking the Father who is in heaven, whose name is holy. There is no element of blemish within him to forgive us of our sins. If forgiveness is an invitation into liberation, the ability to forgive others is rooted in this reality that we must first be forgiven. Understanding, I think the sequencing here is intentionally, uh, incredibly intentional and purposeful for us to understand what precedes the ability to be liberated through the practice of forgiveness is asking for forgiveness from God for what we've done. The nature of reality is that God gave us the very breath that fills up our lungs, and most of us do not think twice about that. You know, so many of us here, I mean, look, you guys look very educated, very accomplished. I see some sweaters in the room. I see some impressive glasses in the room. I mean, like, you are high-performing people, right? Educated, crazy amounts of debt to get crazy degrees to accomplish crazy things, right? But regardless, and I'm not trying to be dismissive of the sphere of influence that God has entrusted with you, but don't get it twisted to, 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 to miss out on the reality that regardless of what you got, went to school for, regardless of the fact that doctor comes before your name and you get introduced in that way at parties, we have done nothing to will ourselves into existence. It was given to us. Like, you didn't go to school for existence. You didn't learn how to create that in a lab. It was given to you. But even though it was given to you, many of us live our entire lives without any awareness of, I should honor that and and kind of live in light of that and honor the giver of that as well. Like, hey, did anybody wake up this morning with a posture of, oh my gosh, I'm alive. Like, isn't it crazy that he gave me another one? This is like whatever 365 times 40 is, that's like, the number that he gave me. I didn't do anything to deserve it. I just, it was given to me. Isn't that amazing? Like, did any of us think that way? Like, we got up and we were cranky and we were tired and we got coffee and we were a little less cranky and tired. And, you know, it's like there's tension with your spouse and your getting here and you're just like, I hope we can resolve this conflict before we get here and I don't even want to be here. What's the weather going on? And, you know, Brandon's not preaching, so why did we even come here? And it's like... It's like we live our whole lives without the least bit of awareness and appropriate gratitude for the gifts of the fact that, like, I mean, just... Okay, like that was the greatest gift any of us could receive. And you think about like, hey, does anybody else here get mad when you give a gift and the gift isn't honored? Anybody ever feel that way? You ever like, hey, I'm just checking in to see if you got it, right? (laughs) One of the things I like to do is... And, okay, this is just, I won't be back, so here we go. Uh, But it's like, one of the things I like to do, one of the things I like to do is I love giving Uber Eats gift cards to people, just because I think it's just one of the great, you know, like, don't worry about it, here it is, you know, go for it. And I hate it, but Uber Eats does this thing where you can track, have they received it? Have they opened it? Have they used it? I mean, it's like way too much information, right? And so there's even in my heart, 
something that's like, hey, it's kind of weird that you used that for sushi and you didn't have the time to like text me thanks that I got it. Like, I know it's weird. I know it's twisted, right? Like, I know some of you are judging me and some of you are self-aware enough to know you would do the exact same thing, right? <laughs> where, where there's this anger of like, hey, I gave this. Are you going to honor it? And God gives us the very breath that fills up our lungs. And we don't think twice about it. The gift of, like, it angers us, but it's like we take it a step further where we not only fail to acknowledge the reality of the gift and the giver of the gift, but we've even used used the gift of the existence, of the existence of the breath that fills up our lungs to not worship and honor the giver of the gift exclusively, but rather we have decided to play God rather than allow God to be God over our lives. We're kind of like, I earned this, I made this, I created this, I deserve this, I'll have this for as long as I want this, and I'll do whatever I want with this. And by the way, I'm also fairly qualified to understand the areas of life that are most important. Like, if anybody loves me, it's me. And if anybody knows what's, what's going to make me happy, it's me. So I don't know how anybody outside of me has claim over me. And we sin. Like, at the very root of sin is not just that we do bad things, but it's a declaration of treason on the God who loves us and gave us the very breath that fills up our lungs and is infinitely kind and wise and sovereign to have exclusively the right in the cosmos to look at his beloveds that he created and say, I alone determine what is good, right, and true. Just in our failure of worship, to acknowledge his gifts this morning on the way here. We have failed to honor him. We are in need of forgiveness from him. And look at me for a second. He is so eager to give it. That's the amazing thing about God. Like for us, when somebody wrongs us, we kind of want to make them earn it back, right? We're like, okay, well, I'll forgive you as long as you apologize in the right way. Anybody had that argument in marriage before? No, no, no. I don't need you to say you're sorry. There's some things I need you to say with your sorry in a particular way. Don't like that tone. Let's try again, you know, and then it just, and, uh, you know, right? I mean, that's us. That's us. It's like, I don't want you to say sorry. There's some things you need to do. I don't want you to say it. I want you to earn it. That's why a lot of times at the root of our unforgiveness for other people is we want them to not just apologize. We want to make them pay, Right? I want to make you experience the same things that happened to me if we're going to be cool, and then I can forgive you. I want you to pay for it. I want you to experience it. And thank God that God isn't like that. The cost is severe, but thank God that Jesus makes the provision to pay what we cannot pay for ourselves. And thank God that God's heart is kind and gentle and lowly and warm and receptive that whosoever might come to him and declare to him an acknowledgement of their, 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 their sinfulness and their wrongfulness and their neediness that he does not discard us but rather welcome us and forgive us. 
He, he, he receives our petition to ask for forgiveness. He makes provision in the finished work of Christ. And on the other side of forgiveness is not his bitterness, where he is perpetually reminding us of our worst mistakes, but a total transformation of our identity where we go from offenders and war declarers to redeemed, forgiven, transformed, adopted, beloved daughters, sons of God. say next. Give me a second. When we grasp, this is another one of those things where like initially it feels like a burden, but it's actually liberation, right? Like what would be the most burdensome thing to say? Go, go to, to weary and heavy laden people. Hey, you're a sinner and you need to be forgiven. Like, thanks, you know? Like I didn't sleep last night. Why are you saying mean things to me now too? right? But see, when you, Jesus never hurts you. He's always kind to you. So when Jesus tells you you're a sinner in need of forgiveness, it's not to wound you, but it's to heal you. And it's an invitation to you to the life that's truly left. Now, how in the world, how in the world could Jesus be blessing me by telling me that I need forgiveness from the Father? Well, I'll tell you how. It's not until you understand you need forgiveness from the Father uh, that you are able to actually forgive the people around you. Because what happens from the forgiveness of the Father is it it liberates us from the bondage of the things that perpetuates our self-justification for unforgiveness. Forgiveness from the Father, the neediness, it, it brings us from being too high or too low that prevents us from getting on level with the people around us and actually forgiving them. So what happens is a lot of times the justification of our unforgiveness is we get so high where we have this sort of posture of, yeah, I would forgive you, but you don't know how much I've done for you. I mean, like, the disparity is too wide, right? Like, if this has been a small thing, like a real small thing, right? Like, for example, I told Brandon this, Emily, this is me telling you this, I broke your lamp this morning. And not the lamp, but the light bulb, right? Now, you're probably like, it's not that big of a deal because the light bulb is like $7. I'll Venmo you if there's tension relationally about it, and we'll do it, right? But like, so, so we're kind of like, oh, yeah, like, I can forgive a light bulb. But, but if it's a real wrong, if I'm way up here and you're way down there, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. That gulf is way too huge for, for us to forget. It makes total sense instinctually until the gospel. And you say, there's no gap bigger than the gap between God and me. It's like the most unfair relationship in the cosmos between who he is and, you know, it's like throw the notions of fair out the window if you want to be a gospel believer. It's like, thank God that God's not fair because I would be on the outs. It levels us and brings us down, hey, okay, like I'm probably should not get so high and mighty to feel like the gap is too huge. If God was kind enough to say the gap between him and me is not huge enough to divide us forever, then maybe the gap between me and that person is not too huge to bridge as well. So we get too high or we get too low. We get too low where we embrace this perpetual identity of being a victim. Now, my mentor, a guy named Chip Dodd, wrote a book called Voice of the Heart, which is really great, and we do a podcast about it together. One of the things he did, we were doing a training together on Friday, and he said, I wrote this down. He just says stuff like this off the cuff, and then my job is to write it down so it doesn't get lost forever. Um, He says, people who've taken on the identity of victims, now, so let me capture this. 
are there legitimate victims? Of course. Like, do people have the experience, like, are, are, there, are there countless experiences of legitimate victimhood in this room? Of course. The challenge is to not let the experience of victimhood mutate into an identity of victimhood. And he says, for the one who has become, taken on the identity of victimhood, they have predicted the future forever and ever. We, we prophesy a gospelist future where the reality is that there is no possibility of any element of redemption. So why should I even forgive? Because I've seen the future. I am always a victim. I am always wronged. Everybody else out there is always offending me and hurting me and after me. And every single relationship has the impossibility of redemption, has the impossibility of hopefulness, has the impossibility of the resurrection power of the gospel that resurrected Jesus from the grave to infuse the realities around me to bring about a different outcome than the one that I experienced in the past. And so we don't forget, right? Because it's like, well, what's the use? It's just going to happen again. What's the use? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a victim, and I'm always going to be a victim, and I'll never be anything other than a victim, and consequently, why should I try to be anything other than a victim? But what the gospel does is it transforms our identity, even prior to being adopted, to being an offender. And being an offender is, a good, is good news because it kills our self-righteousness. It has us wallow in unforgiveness. Okay. So we receive forgiveness, forgive us our sins. Two, then we give forgiveness. We give forgiveness. The, the line of reasoning, the sequencing is very crucial in this particular scene. So Jesus is saying, we received God's undeserved and unfor, uh, unearned forgiveness, now give it away. Receive God's undeserved and unearned forgiveness, now give it away. So he says, for we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us. We give everyone in debt to us. I love that word. Uh, like sometimes it's translated trespasses, but actually debt is like the right translation of it. And debt is a really great word because one, immediately any of you with debt are like, this is serious business, right? You're like, like can I get an amen for the people's student loans, right? You're like, whew, Jesus, you know, escalated this to a different level of what I'm, what I'm going through. Like what I love about Jesus calling when we are wronged by somebody else's debt is he is actually affirming that it's very serious. I'll talk about this in a second, but like what forgiveness is not is, hey, it's no big deal. Forgiveness is not, it's no big deal. Forgiveness is not, it didn't hurt. Forgiveness is not, it doesn't bother me. Forgiveness is the forgiveness of a debt. It's the forgiveness of a debt. So Jesus is actually bestowing dignity upon us when he tells us, what you are releasing is a debt. It's a very serious debt. So when he uses that word debt, it's very robust. One, because he is affirming the magnitude of the ways that we have been wrong. Like the fact that it keeps you up at night is actually validated by Jesus because of how serious what happened to you is. And what should be going off in our brains if we know our New Testaments are sirens that are like, that remind us of like, oh, I think Jesus has used that word somewhere else, and he has. I'm glad you asked. You're like, where else did he use that word debt? Great question, okay? He illustrates this in the gospel according to Matthew, and he tells this story that is ridiculous. He tells this story about this guy who is in like, I know you got student loans, but like you ain't got nothing on this guy, okay? He, owns, he owes 10,000 talents. It's like a bajillion dollars, 
You know, like if you ask my, you ask like uh, my, my son, uh, his name is Bear. He acts like a bear. Uh, so we named him appropriately. You ask Bear like, hey, what's the biggest number? And he'd be like 40 kajillion, right? It's just the biggest number he can comprehend. That's what 10,000 talents is. It's the biggest number you can, it is a laughably, it's like, what were you doing, man? <laughs> like, how did you, how did that happen? Like, I don't, how could you be that in debt? It's an impossible sum to pay back. He owes it to his king. He goes to the king. He throws himself. He says, there's no, there's no payment plan for this. The only, the only payment plan is if you make payment on my behalf. Will you forgive me? Will you forgive the debt? And what's amazing is the master of that servant had compassion, released him, forgave him the loan. Now, you would think on the other side of that. Have you ever thought about that? Like, I won't ask for a show of hands because that would be an invasion of privacy. But for some of you, you're in crazy school debt. You know, I know there's rumors of debt forgiveness. And have you ever thought, like, what are you going to do? Like, what will you do? Like, what if it's just, boop, $200,000? Forgive it. I know that's not the economics, but you know what I mean, right? What would you do? So this guy gets the opportunity to answer it. And he's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go after that dude who owes me money. Right? It's like so weird, right? It's so weird. And he goes after, he immediately is like, you know what? All this debt forgiveness is making me think about the guys that owe me money. It's like the most counter, it's... And so he goes and finds a guy who owes him about $5,000. A lot of money. You can't, you know, do that vacation you had planned if somebody owed you $5,000. It's a life-impacting amount of money. It's not 10,000 talents. It's a lot of money, and this dude literally chokes this guy out. Where's my money? It's like stupid. Right? When we hear a story like that, we think to ourselves, nobody would ever do that. And then Jesus, as only Jesus can do, is like, and that's unforgiveness. That's unforgiveness if you're a Christian. It's something that ridiculous, and that easy, and that instinctual, and that grievous. Because you know how Jesus finishes this parable? It's pretty terrifying. He says, after the king had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had that mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Here's the point, okay? Forgiveness is not lying and saying what happened to you is no big deal. Forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. That's very important because a lot of times you, you know, what some of you maybe even already interpreted that I'm saying is like, you're saying like, I just got to go put myself back in that dangerous situation. No! No! Forgiveness is one way. Reconciliation is two ways. So forgiveness is not putting yourself in danger and reconciling back to hang out with somebody who is dangerous or harms you or can't be trusted. But forgiveness is this. It is the decision to say you do not have to repay the debt you owe me. It is actually agreement with Jesus that you wronged me. You're in debt to me. You owe me something. You do not have to repay that debt to me, not because it is no big deal. It is a huge deal but there is an amount that outweighs what that person owes me, and it's what I owed God. And when I grasp that God did not make me pay it back, but Christ made payment on my behalf, it is finished! 
then you can agree with God and say, you don't have to pay me back, and I forgive you, and I release you, and I will no longer be controlled by you. Because that's really, you know, somebody famously said that uh, unforgiveness or bitterness is like swallowing poison and waiting for the other person to die. And that's, I mean, that's the really bizarre thing is like the gift in all of this is like you're not actually being too good to the other person, even though it is an act of kindness and the forgiveness, but you're actually being the best to yourself. You are extending to yourself the greatest gift you can give to yourself, which is liberation from the frozenness and trying to win and trying to overcome and try to self-protect and try to, you're just frozen in time from trying to make it fair. Right, I think that's even like when Jesus used the word of debt, it's kind of validating of like one of the things that keeps us from being forgiving, which is like we want it to be fair, don't we? Like we want you to pay it back. Pay it back and then we'll, and it's like look at me for a second. I mean the reality of life in a tragic world is you can spend your whole life trying to make it fair or you can live your life, but a lot of times you don't get to do both. You forgive and you give it to God and you say you don't owe us anymore. Let me finish here. I'm going to conclude with a story, um, probably some of you are very familiar with it, uh, of a woman named Corey Ten Boom during the Second World War. Uh, before we do that, and uh, I joke with Brandon in the first service, one of the things they tell you in preaching, I'm like ending the sermon in the, like, the opposite way of the way we were taught. Like, don't end with a slide, and definitely don't end with more than one slide. And I've got 17 slides for you, okay? So, um, not that many, but somewhere between 1 and 17. And... Um, you know, I, I would assume there, there's a lot of different postures in terms of what you feel about this particular moment, but what I, what I want to be particularly sensitive to are those of you here who have people and experiences in mind that you either think, um, it's too hard, I don't want to, or you think, I want to, but I can't. I want to, but I can't. I, I, I mean, I'd love to. I'd love to not be woken up by this anymore, but I can't. I've tried, I can't. Okay, so... As I'm, as I'm kind of reflecting on the story, have that in mind, and then we'll uh, close, close in prayer. Uh, Corrie Ten Boom, incredible woman of the faith. Uh, her and her family were in uh, the Netherlands during the Second World War. And when the Nazis were uh, arresting Jews and throwing them in the concentration camp, the uh, Ten Boom family actually hid uh, Jews in their home. That's what the book The Hiding Place, if you, if you read that, is all about. Uh, pretty soon the Nazis uh, found out that they were doing this and arrested uh, Corey's father, uh, Corey, and then her sister, Betsy, as well. Her father would die, I think, nine days after they were arrested. Uh, her and her sister were thrown into a concentration camp. Her sister died in that concentration camp. Corey would uh, barely survive it. Uh, and after the war, when they were liberated, she devoted the rest of her life in ministry to really helping people forgive uh, because she realized that, like, unforgiveness was just keeping the trauma going forever. And so she built an entire ministry, traveling around and talking and speaking about her experience and the forgiveness and her sister dying and her dad dying and, and learning to forgive herself. And so there's this very famous story, probably some of you have heard of this, where she was you know, basically in an environment just like this one. She's up, she's talking to people about forgiveness, and she looks and she realizes a guard from the concentration camp in which her sister was murdered is in the room. And, you know, immediately she talks about being in her own head and why is he here and is this safe and... Does he remember me? I definitely remember him. And she finishes the talk, and then she's having people line up to greet him, her after the talk. And this guy gets in line to talk to, to her. And he makes his way up, and she talks about the account of him. And so this is what we're going to read, and then we'll pray. 
He comes up to her and he says, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on. I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it as your lips as well. For a line, again the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do, where I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were also able to, also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And, I, and still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole feeling, a whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. And so God who is forgiving and God who is generous to give and God whose word says that we have not because we ask not and a verse like that terrifies us to ask it all. We ask you for the power to forget. I think of the beloved women and men in this room who uh, as soon as as soon as like, we started, and Brandon read the forgiveness verse. They thought, oh, no, not them. Not them. Or they thought to themselves, I wish I could. I wish I could. I wish I could. We ask you two things. Would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you soften our hearts? Would you kill our self-righteousness? Would you grow our humility? And would the gospel shape us to change us into forgiving people desirous of that? Two, would your Holy Spirit empower us to do what we cannot will ourselves to do? Would you propel our hearts and minds and spirits and souls to make the decision of forgiveness? We carry the wounds. We still engage the process. We are not excusing the behavior. What we are saying is the debt has been paid and it will not be held against us. God, in this time of response, move, lead us, move our hearts to not just hear the word, but do the word.
pray that your spirit is amongst us. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.